Well, in a moment, uh, we're going to read together from Hebrews chapter 1. But just a moment or two to, uh, to say a word to you and, and to thank you for having me here and to let you get used to listening to how English ought to be spoken. Uh, that is by a Scotsman. Um, uh, clarifying one or two things, I'm from Scotland and the great... One of the great things about Scotland is, perhaps the greatest thing about Scotland is that it's not England. Uh, in fact, when, when God created Scotland, uh, or one of the angels was reporting on it, and he was telling some, another angel about Scotland and saying how beautiful it was and all the rest of it. He didn't mention the rain, by the way, but anyway, he said how beautiful it was. And uh, the, the other angel said, well, it's, these people are going to be impossible. They're going to be arrogant. They're such a beautiful country, such intelligence, all the rest of it. It goes to being Scotland, Scottish. Uh, how are you ever going to keep them humble? And the other angel said, well, just wait till you see the neighbors. Anyway, <clears throat> when I was telling my wife I was coming to the Reformed Baptist General Assembly, uh, I was also saying to her, the only problem with going to a Reformed Baptist thing is I should really probably be wearing skinny jeans. Uh, <laughs> and, and she said, you've got, the wrong, you've got the wrong General Assembly, that's the PCA, which is <laughs> absolutely true, absolutely true. Anyway, <laughs> all of that's nonsense, but... Uh, I've adjusted to the sound of the building here, which is such a beautiful building. And uh, let's hear the word of God then uh, from Hebrews chapter 1. This is the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And again, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Lord, this evening we are those who by your grace are inheriting salvation. We've had it in its bud, and we will soon have it in its flower when we are with Christ. And this evening, as we come to this, your holy word, we pray that the Spirit who inspired it and who breathed out these words would breathe into our hearts to illumine our minds and to do more than illumine our minds, to warm our hearts, to engage every aspect of our being as we come to hear you speak to your people. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Now you can immediately see as we've read this passage together that the author of Hebrews understands something that is really quite fundamental. What is that? Well, it is that the God who is, that is the God who exists, has communicated to us his creatures. In these opening words, the word God governs these two verbs, to speak, spoken. God has spoken and he has spoken his final word to us. The first word came to our fathers by the prophets. The author, as you know, is primarily addressing some Christian converts from Judaism who were part of the racial group descended from the fathers. But as the book goes on, we discover that when he says our fathers, he means our fathers, because they're not only the fathers of those who genetically are descended from them or part of the same race as them, but they are our fathers in the faith. They, their faith is the common faith held by Christian people of every race. They are our fathers in the faith. And throughout this book, we will find that the one God who spoke to those fathers then it speaks to us through the fathers today, and he speaks by his servants, the prophets. Because the Lord God who gave the Bible shared his secrets with the prophets. What we mean by the word God is unpacked for us by the holy prophets. What we mean by the word God is the God that is described by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, by Jeremiah, by Moses, by David. The God who is incomprehensible. Who leaves us really with our minds hurting, with our imaginations reeling. The God who is ineffable. The God who is immortal, invisible, immutable, whose ways are always past finding out. Late John Webster wrote this, the simple, absolute noun, theos, God, unadorned by an epithet or appositional phrase, not only holds together all the parts of this statement, in the main clause, it, it announces the fundamental reality in which all the, uh, all the else in the exhortation in this book has its ground. God, God spoke. To our fathers. 
And we, we move too quickly if we, if we want to move past that word, God. This is in the language of that very famous Baptist, Thomas Aquinas. This, this is, this is the God who is. The God whose essence is his existence. This is the God who is determined. So the text is teaching us, determined to share his life, his intrinsic life, and his internal happiness and blessedness with us. That's why he communicates with us, because he wants communion with his creatures. In sheer love, his being bubbles over into communication with with his people. As a result of the fall, his immense grace and kindness has acted to draw finite humans into fellowship with his infinite self. This God who is, whose essence is his existence, is revealed as the one who has life in himself. He spoke. He has life in himself. He's the one who spoke to Moses. I am that I am. The one who has made and maintains and manages all of created reality. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the spirit of his mouth, all their host. He spoke and they all came to be. Genesis 1 says, God says, God calls, God names, God blesses. He makes the cosmos to be a holy habitation for himself. He commissions his creatures Humans to, to their priestly mission of looking after the garden. He establishes a covenant with them. A covenant of promises as well as threats. A promise of life. This God, who is, whose essence is his existence, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, by the Holy Spirit, He overcame the effects of sin in the mind and the reason of these men. He revealed spiritual truths in spiritual words to spiritual people, as he does to us, by turning our hearts around, by working in us by the Spirit, so that we understand the spiritual words that were revealed to our fathers through the prophets. He put these words in the mouths of his servants. They often spoke more than they, than they knew. Often they puzzled over the message that they'd been delivered. But their words were the words of the Lord. They were the words of the Holy Spirit, the passage tells us. They were the words of the divine author. They were God's words. And the theme was always God. The subject and object was always God. God himself, the speaking subject throughout the history of Revelation. The absolute God who stands at the source and holds together the whole flow of this passage of Scripture. This God spoke to our fathers so that if we are going to hear this God We cannot ignore them. We cannot bypass them. We cannot reject their witness. We cannot do a Marcion on them. 
He spoke through the fathers. Israel, again in the language of John Webster, was the sphere of prospect and promise. And the destination, the termination, the perfection of this revelation is to be found in the full and final and filial word, in His Son. He is the one about whom the fathers spoke. He is the one that they named seed of the woman, son of Abraham, son of David, son of man, son of God. It is to him that is assigned divine names. He is glory, the name, the word, the wisdom, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh, Shiloh, King, Shepherd, Messiah, Holy One, Rock, Fortress, Redeemer, Savior. And the whole of the story that these fathers describe and speak about, the whole of the story of Israel is a plot that is unfolding and yet tantalizingly it comes to an end without a final resolution. It ends in exile. It ends with people in exile in Babylon and then under Persia. And then when they return to the land, still in exile with Greeks commanding and then Romans commanding until, until these last days, the often promised, much contemplated, long anticipated last days when God has spoken in and as the Son. There is throughout the whole of Scripture only one instance of divine sonship, of divine begetting. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the Father's side, has made Him known. And in the Son, we're told, God came and spoke His final full and filial word. This is the fruition, the perfection of God's self-expression, of God's self-revelation, of God's self-communication. In these last days, Speak says that in these last days there has been a plenitude of divine revelation, an overflow, an abundance, a perfection of divine revelation. In these last days. Here we are gathered and we're going to be talking about church planting. We're going to be talking about the challenges that face us in modern America. We're going to be talking about the challenges that face us in ministry. Perhaps we're sharing with one another the temptations and the trials of being ministers of the gospel. Or being married to ministers of the gospel. Which is a greater trial, I believe. And we... We wonder at our location. Perhaps you're, you're thinking about the place you've come from and you're thinking what a tough place that, that is. But this evening I want us to consider where this text places us. It places us in this room tonight in these last days. These last days in which the ends of the ages have come upon us. These last days in which God has spoken His 
full, final, filial word to us. These last days that constitute the church of Jesus Christ, which is in these last days the pillar and ground of truth. And whatever, whatever the particularities of one moment in time, whatever the peculiarities or the perplexities of that place in this world where you live and work, whatever the burdens we bring with us to this conference, and all of us will bring burdens of one kind or another, we, you and I, are recipients of knowledge into which the angels long to look. Every time we preach to five people or 500 people, the angels are present listening to your sermons, wanting to find out more of what you know about the things of God as those who participated in the Word of God. In these last days, these days, and the knowledge we have in these days is not capable of being supplemented or superseded. It is not interim or transitional. It is not preparatory. It is perfect. It is perfect. It's all we need. It's what the world needs. Our fathers didn't have what we have. Later on, the writer will say, all these, these fathers, they, though they're commended because of their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In God's scheme of things, these last days put us in a place where our grasping these truths, teaching, proclaiming these truths, implementing these truths, completes the testimony of those who are our fathers in the faith. Everything else up to this moment, everything before these last days was anticipatory, was preparatory. While they were, while they were speaking, these fathers, everything was moving. It was on a journey somewhere. There was a destination. But not now. We've arrived at the destination. John Calvin puts it like this, if God has now spoken his last word, it is right to advance this far just as we must now halt our steps when we arrive at him. God has spoken his final word. And the implication of this for the church is that we find ourselves beside the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory was revealed, hearing the voice from the excellent glory of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. So the 
God who is, whose essence is his existence, has revealed himself, do you see, to be a father to a son. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That immediately puts the son on the God side of all of reality. In Scripture, the God of Israel is the creator of all things. So there are things, and there's God. Creatures, things, creatures beget things. Creatures. God begets God. So there's God and Son, and there's creaturely reality in all its parts. Immediately, right at the very beginning of this chapter, these, this gulf is established, this uncrossable divide is, is established between God and Son and creatures. And the Son, we're told, is the heir of all things. He is heir of all things in God and in creaturely reality. Back in Proverbs 8, where the wisdom of God is being described, possessed from eternity, first in the Father's heart, set up before anything else happened, brought forth before ever the world was brought forth, is able to say, I was there, I was beside him, I was daily his delight. Eternally with the Father, he is the heir of all things. When it says he was appointed heir of all things, we're not to imagine that all things were made and then he was appointed heir of all things at some point subsequent to their being made. No, by virtue of his being son, he is heir. The son is heir to the father's nature, to the father's being, to all that the father is and has. All that God is and has belongs to the son because the son is heir of all things. Even this language of all things in the Old Testament is uh, monotheistic, it's it's always when God is trying, when God is explaining how it is that He is different from everything else, He talks about all things and He says He's made all things, He has all things, He owns all things, He possesses all things. The all things differentiate Godness from everything else. The Father loves the Son and has put all things into His hand knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. It was as heir, the heir of all things that he came to us, that he took on our human flesh. In our human flesh, as the second and last Adam, in a covenant of works relationship as the first Adam was with the Father, because he's in our place. 
because he's our representative. He has to earn in his human nature the inheritance that is his in his eternal nature so that he might share in his human nature that inheritance accommodated to his human nature with all of us whom he takes to himself and owns as his own and makes sons of God, children of God by adoption. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. How appropriate that he should be heir of all things because he is the maker of all things through whom he created all things. I've said he's the heir of all that's in God and all that is not God. Listen to these words in Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who made all things. All these things my hand has made, so that all these things came to be, declares the Lord. John 1, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of all things. So the author is placing his son in God in distinction from all creaturely reality. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The Son is the creator of all things. And the Son is very God of very God. Having distinguished the Son from all created reality, he now gives us the grounds for that distinction. What is it about him that distinguishes him from all created reality? Well, here are the reasons. He is light of light. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Glory, of course, is a created thing. Glory, if glory is something that is seen by angels and by other creatures, then it's a created reality meant to communicate something of the inherent wonder, beauty, light of God. So glory, God's glory is God himself. Often in Scripture, it denotes the visible presence of God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Here we're being told that the sun is the light that God is. The light does not spotlight on the sun. The light does not simply illumine the sun. Maybe background light. No, no. The light that is God shines from the sun, and the light that shines from the sun is the Father. The light that shines from the Father is the sun. Basil, one of the early church fathers, puts it like this, the radiance is always considered with the glory that is its source, the image with its prototype, and always the Son with the Father. One demands the other. Both are inseparably joined in name and nature. Is God light? Jesus. 
is the light. The Son is light of light, and the Son is God of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He is the exact representation and repetition of the Father's essence. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. Does the Father have life in Himself? The Son has life in Himself. Does the Father do works? The Son does these works, the same works. And though distinct in person, this is essentially, there is an essential identity with the Father. And the Son is true God of true God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What that means is he carries it. He sustains it. He, he preserves it. He maintains it. Everything in creaturely reality. Creation. This, this universe in which we live. This planet on which we live and move and have our being. These creaturely bodies and these creaturely emotions and this creaturely mind that compose what we are as, as individual people in this room, we cannot bear, we, we cannot bear ourselves. The universe cannot bear, carry itself. There is a feebleness built into our system. There is a frailty built into nature. The second law of thermodynamics is all running down, all running down, and we are running down. So what bears it up? What, what upholds it? Well, here we're told that it is. It is the sun who upholds the universe. Because in his Nature is God, he is invisible, and he is immense, he is everywhere, and he is fully present everywhere. This is a creaturely illustration of this. I was in Hawaii, the only time I've been to Hawaii, at the Banner Truth Conference to speak, and I'm sitting on the Maybe I shouldn't say this in Fargo, really. Well, I was sitting on the balcony overlooking an extinct volcano here and the Pacific Ocean there, and this warm breeze, breeze was, was just swirling around my face. It's a very rare experience for a Scotsman. Usually it's, usually it's, the, it's the horizontal rain that, that's... And sometimes even the rain that comes from up below as well. I mean, it comes from every direction at you. I guess we invented that multi-thingy shower idea. They got it in Scotland. But there was the breeze. And anyway, I'm sitting there in the balcony and I'm thinking and I'm thinking about my children who are... So there's America and there's one there. And then beyond that, further away, there's the ones who are back in, in Britain. And I'm thinking, this breeze... That I'm feeling on my face. Wherever they are, they'll be feeling air on their face. 
And that's a very, 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 very bad illustration. You must never use this illustration. <laughs> it's so bad. But what struck me was that wherever I am, God is fully engaged and present and not just in front of my face, but to the synapses in my brain, to the DNA at the core of my being, that everything that works anywhere in the universe, the supernovas and, 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 and the quarks and all those things, which I only know the name of, they only work because God in Christ sustains them. By the word of his power. Because his word is the enactment of his will. When Jesus, when Jesus spoke to, those, to that wind and those waves, the wind dropped and the waves didn't just start to die down, they immediately went calm. And it was so terrifyingly unusual, miraculous, supernatural, of God, the disciples were made to ask the question, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What they didn't know is the neurons in their brain that came up with that question were being sustained by the will and work of his power. That's the reality. And how blessed it is to know, isn't it? That the Son with the Father and the Spirit are almighty and everywhere present to uphold and govern heaven and earth and all creatures so that herbs and grass and rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and yea, all things are being sustained and maintained by the word of his power. And when Satan tempts me to despair, when Satan shakes me up, when, shake, when there's a demon's meeting, or a, sorry, a deacon's meeting, or something that you're dreading in your calendar that's coming up, or you're feeling assaulted in your family life, perhaps, or even in your personal life, to know that he is in control. And it's your Lord Jesus who's in control. It's your lovely Lord Jesus who as the eternal Son is controlling it all. Well, the Son is greater than the angels. Greater than the angels. You'll see as you glance down the passage we read how many quotations from the fathers are, are, are gathered together here. Why, why, does, why does God give us so many quotations here? I suppose it's because he wants to illustrate the principle that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is God's word. 
And you know the way the, the way the author introduces the quotations. God says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he says, God says, five times in verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, finishing with, to which of the angels did God ever say? God says, Holy Scripture reports what? God's speech. So why angels? Well, because angels are a measure of ontological status in the Bible. I wanted to say that word for a long time. Uh, Richard Bockham puts it like this, to be above the angels is to be God. To be below the angels is to be human. Which is why in that psalm, which is quoted here, that psalm that begins with how majestic is your name in all the earth and ends with how majestic is your name in all the earth, which is your clue. Because he came from glory and returned to glory. It tells the whole career of our Lord Jesus who shared in the majesty of heaven and yet was made for a little while lower than the angels, but has now been crowned with glory and honor. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How embarrassing to see you made lower than the angels, becoming a son of man, becoming Adam's son, How wonderful to see you now as the exalted man returning to the glory that was yours at the beginning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Angels are measures of ontological status. And when the Lord Jesus came into the world, he was made a little lower than the angels. And the writer says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Can I say that this, from Psalm 2, this is how we are to read Psalm 2. This is not about the messianic king. This is about the begotten son of God. It's from this verse that God speaks to Jesus at his baptism and his transfiguration. This is my beloved son. You are my son. Calvin is wrong when he says that the word today does not refer to the eternal today. All the fathers, many of the reformers, many of the Puritans, and especially for Richard's sake, Richard Marcellus' sake, John Owen, says that today means the eternal. Today, when God says today, he doesn't mean Tuesday. He doesn't mean 2018. When God says today, it's God's day, God time, not our time. And he says... From eternity, he was the only begotten Son of the Father. This is the language from which Jesus derived his own self-understanding as he 
read the scriptures. This is why even as a little boy, he was able to say to his earthly parents, well, you know why I'm in the temple. You should know. I mean, you know all about them angels and so forth. And we've been, you've been listening to me talking about the Bible since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. You know that I should be about my father's business. In his human nature, with his human consciousness, with the help of the Holy Spirit, understanding the Holy Scriptures, he had his consciousness that he was, was the son of the Father from all eternity. And at his resurrection, this sonship was proclaimed. It was proclaimed by his being raised from the dead that in fact all that he'd said of himself, all that he'd insisted upon, was in fact the case. It says we have a divine Messiah. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. O God, your throne is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. When Jesus got into controversy with the people of his day, you remember when they were quoting Psalm 110, which is also quoted here. They quoted it, and they complained that Jesus was, by calling himself Son, was making himself equal with the Father. They did not think he's making a messianic claim. They thought he is making himself equal with the Father. Which is, of course, also making a messianic claim, but it's secondary, not primary in the text. Jesus goes on to challenge them. He challenges them about the use of the words, Lord, my, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus says, which Lord are we talking about here? If this is David's Lord, how can he be his son? Throughout this chapter, we have the Lord Jesus described as the eternal divine son eternally begotten of the Father, the object of worship by his people, the firstborn before all creation, the one who from all eternity shares the throne of God because he is God, who is passionate about righteousness, who laid the foundations of the earth. In fact, by the end of it, by the end of it, the writer leaves off trying to compare him to angels. And he's just quoting globs of Scripture that refer to the Lord God of Israel. You, Lord. He's addressing Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. You remain. They'll wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. You're the same. You're the same. 
your years will never end. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the one at whose feet we humbly fall and crown him Lord of all. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God, manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one, worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou, that every knee to thee shouldst bow. This is our Savior. This is our friend. This is our God. Father, we pray this evening that we might bring great joy to your heart in honoring and exalting, in loving and obeying, in proclaiming your Son. Will you, Lord, make it the great passion of our lives, the great passion of our ministries, that even in our deathbed, we might lisp his name and ask that you would draw all men to him. In his strong name we pray. Amen.